Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. You ever been just kind of humming through life, like you're doing your routines, running the errands, whatever it is you do, and you get a phone call that changes everything? My wife and I experienced that a couple weeks ago. We were, it was a Saturday, and we were doing our normal Saturday routine. Uh, one of our daughters had just finished a soccer game, and we were walking off the field, and Shanna looked at me, and she said, we've got to go to the hospital. I said, why? She said, Rosie Headspath was just kicked in the head by a horse. They're care flighting her to Duke. I didn't know where they were coming from. I didn't know any of the details at that moment, but if those of you don't know, Rosie Headspath's an eight-year-old little girl. Um, her parents, Matt and Misty, are missionaries of ours. We sent out about 11 years ago to go. They were going to reform the adoption process in Panama, which started with just their own desire to adopt, and God continued to grow that, and eventually they, they've recently started the, most, the, the first ever uh, special needs orphanage in Panama, and they're living back here in Raleigh, which is where they're from, uh, for this next year. And so they were out of the… Uh, Rosie's favorite spot in the whole world is this farm in Oxford, North Carolina. And they were out there. And if you know Rosie, she loves animals. Like, all kids love animals, right? Like, if you ask any kid out in the bridge kids today, like, what's your favorite animal? They'll tell you, like, a tiger, an elephant. Like, a lot of times they'll just pick whatever's on their mind at that moment. Rosie's got a list of animals that gets into the triple digits. And her number one favorite animal is horses. And so they're out on this farm. They've been there before. Matt's familiar with horses. He knows when they look spooked and when they're comfortable. And they went over to feed these horses that were totally relaxed, and they had a good time with the horses. And as they were getting ready to leave, one of them jerked and turned. Matt said, next thing you know, it felt like he got punched in the jaw. He got kicked by this horse. And it turned him like he hit this fence. And when he turned back around, he didn't realize that he only caught the graze of the horse, that his daughter actually got most of it. She was lying there on the ground, totally limp, unconscious, with blood coming out of the back of her head. The doctor said what happened was that when the horse kicked the back of her head, it shattered the back of her skull about the size of a credit card, and these bones were all over life-threatening veins. And what Matt did in that moment, you know, if you're a dad in that moment, that's one of those, like, this can't really be happening. This is a nightmare-type situation. He pulled his shirt off. He wrapped it around her head. He rushed her back to their, their truck, and her two brothers were there too, Isaac, her youngest brother, and Peter, who's 13. And he said to Peter, 13-year-old, said, hold your sister's head together. They go rush into this hospital. They didn't even know where the hospital was. And they get to this hospital, and Matt, the way he told me his story, he says, I'm running through this hospital. The two little boys, they've taken my daughter. I've got no shirt on. I've got blood all over me from my daughter. People must have thought I was insane. And he was just losing his mind over what was going to happen to his daughter. And they told him they were going to care flight her to Duke. They ended up taking her in an ambulance because they couldn't even get the, the helicopter there in time. And that's when we got the call. And what do you do in that moment? You pray. It's the only thing you can do. You're helpless at that moment. But as a believer, you know the God of life and death. So we start praying. And my wife and I head over to the hospital. There's already some people there, and then people just keep trickling in. And Misty, Rosie's mom, was told by the care coordinator that your situation is so dire, you can fill up this whole wing of people praying if you want to. And people kept praying. And many of you started praying. We put it on social media. Many of you started praying for Rosie and that that moment, and uh, there were people that were coming into that place, circles of people praying, people laying on the floor, like it was, it was a picture of the body of Christ in prayer, and we were just begging God for this little girl's life. About three hours later, the surgeons came out, and not only did they say that she survived, 
But get this, I said, she's going to go home in a few days. And uh, Rosie's here with us this morning. She's right over here. You want to say hi, Rosie? And uh, for those of you who can't see her, we got a couple pictures, I think. The tech team's got some pictures. And we'll show you here. Here's Rosie. That was right after the surgery on the ventilator. And this is just a couple weeks ago, by the way. So she's right here with us today. Here's a, we've got a couple other pictures of her, I think, in recovery. Yeah, there she is playing with her sister. Yeah, for sure. Praise the Lord. But for those of you who are followers of Jesus, and those of you who are maybe just checking this out and skeptical, why do we pray? We know the God of life and death. And here's something that I think some of us might believe in our minds, but it's sometimes hard to get it down into our hearts. That God, He not only did miracles, He does miracles. And this little girl being here with us today, she's a living, walking miracle. And an answer to prayer. See, what happens when we're praying is we're engaging the almighty creator of life and death. He made each one of you here, knows every hair on your head, knows every thought you're going to have throughout this message. Oh, thankfully, he's, he's gracious. And so the question I have for us today is, why don't we pray more? Why is it in these times of needs we run to him, but then he says to pray daily in the morning when you wake up, come to him in prayer, pray constantly and and we're talking about revival as a church. Let me tell you something about revival. Revival always begins. It starts. It's birthed in prayer. Let me read you a couple quotes by some Bible scholars. One is a guy, he's a famous Bible commentator. His name's Matthew Henry. He says this, when God intends great mercy for his people, the first thing he does is to set them a praying. Some of you maybe uh, did the study. It was popular five or ten years ago, experiencing God, a guy named Henry Blackaby. He says this, all revival begins and continues in the prayer meeting. In times of revival, thousands may be found on their knees for hours, lifting up their heartfelt cries with thanksgiving to heaven. See, in prayer, not only are we asking for help, we're communing with our Father. And last week, we talked about intentional intimacy. And we asked the question, do we love Jesus? And maybe even heard our worship leader, Nikki, this morning when she said, we go to the Father. He really is our Father. Through the Son, there's no way you get to the Father except for through Jesus, John 14, 6. And they said, by the Spirit, we wouldn't even want to talk to the Father if it wasn't for a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so if you're wrestling today with, why don't I want to pray? That's a work of the Spirit. Ask God to do a work of the Spirit in your heart. It's not, I've got to be more disciplined. There's no guilt that's being thrown on us today. But what we're looking at today in this message is this, the fourth mark of a revived church. And so if you have your Bible, we're going to be back in Acts chapter 2. We've been looking at these four marks of the early church, the first church. They weren't a revived church. They were a spirit-filled, alive church because they didn't live and then die and then be brought back. Like, that's what revival is. They were just being born. But I think when you look at what they're like, what you see is what we would look like as a church in America, as Southbridge, if we experienced revival. And so if you have your Bible, Acts chapter 2. Remember the context for Acts chapter 2 are those first four books of the New Testament, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, that he lived a life that we should have lived but couldn't live, a sinless life. But the wages of our sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ who died the death that we deserve to die on the cross. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. Amen? Okay, that's, a, that's always an amen moment. Just FYI. Don't got to wait for Easter. Jesus rises from the dead. Amen. And then he gave instructions to his followers. The last time he gives instructions, it's in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says this. If you've got your Bible, you can look back at it. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
And then do you know what they do next? You can skim through. I'm not making this stuff up. It's right here in the Bible. If you look down at verse 14 in chapter 1, you see what they do next. They have a prayer meeting. That prayer meeting in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, you can directly tie to the fact that we're meeting here today. Their prayer meeting 2,000 years ago impacted our lives. It says in Acts chapter 1 verse 14, all these, there were 120 of them, we find out in verse 15, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. The 120 of them are there, and then we know what happens if you've been part of this series so far, is the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They start preaching in, in languages they didn't even know. And people are like, are these people drunk? And then Peter gets up and is like, no, let me tell you, this is from the Bible. It's in Joel. And then he tells us from the Psalms about the life of Jesus and his resurrection because Jesus raised from the dead. All right. Don't fade on me. We're just getting started. And then look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. What happened was 3,000 people come to Christ in one day. And that moment turns into a movement. And we see how in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves. That's a laser-focused commitment. And then we see four things, and we're on the fourth thing today. To the apostles' teaching, we call that a hunger for God's Word. To the fellowship, that's a distinct relationship, not just with God, but with each other. It's living out the one another of Scripture. To the breaking of bread, that's the Lord's Supper, and we talked last week about intentional intimacy, and then this one, the prayers. It's interesting, there's a definite article there, the, and then it's in the plural, prayers. There were probably some written prayers, probably the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Probably a prayer that they prayed regularly. Some scholars think about three times a day. But there were also spontaneous prayers. We see that throughout the book of Acts. But what we see here is these were people that were committed to prayer. Now, you've heard me say multiple times in this series that many Bible scholars believe that every revival is a repetition of the day of Pentecost. That's what happened in Acts chapter 2. 3,000 people coming to Christ and the church getting started. And so these characteristics that we see here are characteristics that we can make the assumption will be a part of any revival that would take place. And one of them here we see is their commitment to prayer. And so today, as we talk about the fourth mark of a revived church, we're going to call the fourth mark of a revived church people persistently praying. It's when people are persistent in prayer together, because that's what we see in the book of Acts. In fact, all they're doing is they're modeling what they saw in the life of Jesus, by the way. Because Jesus was always… Think about Jesus. He, was, he wasn't needy, but He was always praying. He said, I only do what the Father tells me to do. How does he know that? Because he's communing with the Father. And it's not just moments of prayer. We see those. He prays before he calls his disciples. He, he prays at pivotal moments and transitions in his ministry. Before dawn, he's up praying. We see him go away when he sends him out on the boat for the storm, praying. Garden of Gethsemane, sweat and drops of blood, he's praying. He lived a life of prayer. So the church tries to emulate that. And you go through Acts and you see that. We don't have time to go through all the passages, but I know some of you will go study this later. And so we're going to put up on the screen several places where we see them continuing in prayer. We already saw chapter 1, verse 14. The church began in a prayer meeting. There were 120 of them. Imagine what it was like to be a part of that original 120. And then a few days later, there's 3,120 of you. Where did all my friends go? I don't like this church anymore. It's changed some. That's not what they were doing. They were loving Jesus. And then what you see is it says in chapter 2, in verse 42, they devoted themselves to prayer. And then I'm going to hit some of these for you. Chapter 4, verse 31, they're praying for boldness amidst persecution. What happens in chapter 3, verse 1, you can glance down at that, is that they were headed, Peter and John were headed in to the temple for their time of prayer. So they're going for prayer at the temple. Then this miracle takes place because you're connecting with the Almighty God. 
And then they face persecution from the most powerful men in the world, the equivalent of today's Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. And they say, don't talk about the name of Jesus anymore. Chapter 4, verse 12 says, there's no, there's no other name by which men shall be saved. It's the name of Jesus Christ. They know what they have to do. And they even say to them, you decide if it's right for us to obey you or God. But they're still afraid. And so they go to their friends and they pray. And it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, the place where they were praying, it was shaken by the power of God. And they go out with boldness. Chapter 6, they're praying for new leaders. We were praying for one of our elders today. In chapter 6, they're praying for deacons, which is an office we have here in our church as well. In chapter 9, verse 40, they're praying for miracles. In chapters 10 through 11, they're praying about reaching new people. Uh, Peter, they pray for Peter to be released from prison, chapter 12. Chapter 13, as they send out missionaries, you've seen us do many times as a church, church planters, they're praying for them. Chapter 16, verse 25, Paul praying while he's in prison, resulting in the jailer's conversion. If you know that story, it's incredible. Acts chapter 20, verse 36, they're praying when they're leaving the church that he planted. He's weeping and praying with those elders as he's leaving. God's calling him to go somewhere else. Acts chapter 21, verse 5, praying when entering a dangerous situation. 28, the end of the book, praying for signs and wonders. And you know, one of the amazing things about the book of Acts is it never ends. There's no conclusion to it if you read it. Because we are the book of Acts. We're still living it out. And what you saw was these people, when they were spirit-filled people connected with Jesus Christ, they were praying, not just out of obedience, not just out of following Jesus' example, because they wanted to commune with the Father. That's what prayer is really all about. It's communing with the Father through the Son, by the Spirit, which is a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And they persisted, because if you notice those circumstances I just read to you, in good times and in bad times, they did it when there's persecution, they did it when there was celebration, miracles. You saw it all throughout. And so here's what, here's what it means to persistently pray. It means perseverance. It means to pray regardless of obstacles, regardless of the opposition that comes before you. And you think about perseverance, and people that you know that persevere. I was thinking this week about it, and this is probably a ridiculous example, but my dog is what made me think of perseverance this week. We've got two dogs at our house, uh, both miniature dachshunds. They weigh between 10 and 12 pounds. Uh, they think they're about 100 pounds. They act like they're Rottweilers, like they think that they're tough. One of them does. They actually have different personalities. One of them thinks he's tough. The other one, so the one that thinks he's tough, he lays around like all the time. That's all he does is sleep like 23 and a half hours a day. He sleeps, he eats a little bit, and we let him outside. And then the other one, he wants to play all the time, but he's scared of everything. And we've got this fox that's been in our backyard for like a few years now. And it torments, it even torments me. Like I remember one time I was out in our backyard and there was this beach ball laying in the backyard and the fox came trotting up, lifted his leg, peed on the beach ball. It was like he was like, what are you going to do? My backyard. And so he torments our dogs. And the one dog that thinks he's tough, his name's Noble. He's not Noble, but he thinks he's tough. And uh, we call him Noble. Maybe we'll think, maybe it'll speak life into him, whatever. And uh, he, he always chases the fox or squirrels or anything that's in our backyard. Sparty gets scared. That's our other dog. And so he runs up on the back deck, and he looks at me like, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I'm going to let him die. What do you think I'm going to do? I'm not going out there. And so it's about midnight the other night. I open the door. They both tear out of there. They're barking. I'm like, oh, man, I just want to go to bed. They go taking off. I start yelling for him. I'm clapping. Noble, get in here. Sparty, get in here. Next thing I know, Sparty's standing next to me. Noble's barking, but it's going further and further out into the woods behind our house. I'm like, this is ridiculous. We go inside the house. Sparty's looking at me. I'm like, he's going to die. He's just going to die, Okay put him in his bed. I go back out there, and I don't hear him barking anymore, but I hear, oh, I'm like, he's a dachshund. He's not a wolf dog. 
I don't know if something else has eaten him. Like, I don't know what's happened. I was like, I'm going to bed. Like, I'm sick of this. I'm going to bed. I close the door. I go inside, and then I think of my little girls. They're going to be like, Dad, you killed our dog. He's an idiot. I didn't do it. So I dig around online for a couple minutes. About 20 minutes later, Noble comes up on the front porch. And I go out there, and I'm looking. I like him examining, like, what happened to you? And then I look at his face, and he's licking his lips like the cat who ate the canary. He's like, like he got something. I don't know what it was, but he was happy and satisfied. Now, here's a dog who sleeps for 23 and a half hours a day. But when I open the doors, he thinks he's Carl Lewis. Like he's running out the door, hurtling, jumping, going through, doing whatever he has to do to get what he wants, regardless of obstacle or opposition. That's perseverance. There's a lot of reasons why we won't pray. You're busy. Distracted, didn't have good models of it. We have no plan for it. We've got an enemy who doesn't want us to do that. There's plenty of opposition. There's pl- you don't think there was opposition for this church? You don't think they were busy? Like, listen, they didn't even have microwaves. You're like, yeah, that's the thing. They weren't distracted by iPhones. Right. And then when their wife said, honey, go get dinner, it wasn't 919 dying, FYI. They didn't have dishwashers. And they had kids that had a lot of needs. And they had a lot of kids. See, people that are devoted to prayer aren't the ones that are just going, you know what, I don't really want to watch all that TV. Well, they, they want to just chill too. I don't really want to scroll through Facebook. No, they don't want to think about stuff either. But by the Spirit, there's been a work that's been done in their life. And they go through the Son because they want to commune with their Father. And you think about why. What, what kept this church this way? Do you know why? Because they were desperate. You know what prayer reveals? People that are devoted to prayer, prayer reveals your desperate need for God. Prayer reveals your desperate need for God. And you think about it with this church. It's easy to talk about all the different reasons for prayer in the Bible. You can talk about quiet communion, it's there. You can talk about lament, it's there. You can talk about anger, you see it. See, the Bible talks a lot, a lot less about how to pray and it more just showing examples of people praying. But the overwhelming image of prayer in the Bible is people crying out to God for help. Whether it's an exodus, the people that have been in 400 years of bondage, whether it's Hannah who, who's not able to have babies and she's crying out to God, or whether it's a, a father whose daughter has died coming to Jesus, a person with a blood issue, like you see these people, they're, they're crying out to God. And so what you see is their desperate need for God. See, our problem, I believe, isn't that we're too busy, it's not that we're too distracted, it's that we're self-sufficient. And we think we don't need Him. Like, in our minds, we know we need God. Like, we need God to breathe. Like, we wouldn't breathe without God. But, but we think we got it all together. Don't forget about this church. It's easy to romanticize Acts chapter 2, especially when you talk about their relationships with each other and we talk about their generosity with one another. Don't forget what's actually happening here is they're under persecution. They just killed their Messiah. Peter preaches this message. He doesn't know if he's going to be killed. 3,000 people are baptized. They don't know if they're going to be killed. They're just walking by faith. And so the fact that there's persecution coming, chapter 3, chapter 4, I already mentioned to you, they're going for prayer, and then these guys say, don't talk about this name anymore, you're going to be persecuted. They could be killed. They know their need continually, a continual dependence upon God. But then you think about us and where we're at. And we know there's like Christian brothers and sisters getting their heads chopped off somewhere, but like our biggest threat is we might lose our tax-exempt status. Is that not kind of like laughable, actually? Like, we get stressed out about these things, and the political warfare that's taking place is like, really? Like, we got people starving to death. 
And we're afraid that people won't give enough money to the church because they don't get a deduction. If they don't give because they don't get a deduction, there's a problem already. And then you think about us as a community, just like Raleigh. We talk about America, that removes a little bit, but highly educated. Just in the area right around our church, over 70% of people have a bachelor's degree. Or when I first came here, it was said that there are more PhDs in Raleigh-Durham area than anywhere in the world per capita. Highly educated. If you do the demographic research, very wealthy compared to the, the national average. We're wealthy. We're educated. And I get there are tragedies that come every once in a while. But we have a danger that we become like the church in Revelation 3 that Jesus addresses. Listen to what he says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. It doesn't mean that you think you need nothing, that you really need nothing. Not realizing you've become blind to your need. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. They were wealthy because of their eye salve that they made, by the way, so calling them blind is ironic. I was reading an article this week that compared the church in America to Esther in the Old Testament. Those of you who don't know Esther, uh, it's a story of a Jewish woman who ends up becoming a queen. She's living in the palace while on the outside there's a nation crying for its life. And I think we've, it's like we've become comfortable in the palace. If you were here a couple weeks ago, I was sharing with you like, oh, the God's done all these amazing things in our church and bringing us together and putting us on this campus and being debt-free and the most dangerous thing that could happen is we become comfortable and complacent, which is where I think we are as the American church. And I don't want us to be a South I don't want to be a part of a church that's comfortable and complacent. And so you look at, so what does it take? What does it take for us to be dependent, to see our need? Well, you read through the Bible and you look at some of these people that are praying, and oftentimes it takes difficulty. It's oftentimes difficulty that reveals our desperation for God. I was reading this morning, Mark chapter 9. I love the passage, but I think about it with Rosie and what she was going through and what, the, what Matt and Misty felt like in that moment. There's a father in Mark chapter 9, and his son's demon-possessed. He's been seizing. Some of you have kids that have struggled with seizures. He's been seizing, foaming at the mouth, throws himself on the ground. And he comes to find Jesus. Jesus is gone. He's nowhere to be found. They can't find Jesus, and so they settle for the next best thing, right? Jesus' representatives, that's us. They try to cast out this demon. They can't. And then the man sees Jesus, and all these people are flocking around Jesus, but above the crowd, he shouts. He says, I'm here. I've got the son. Here's his problem. He says, if you can, have compassion on us. Just give us some pity, Jesus, like some relief. And Jesus responds with, if I can? And he says, all things are possible for those who believe. Then the man gets to the real heart of the issue. I believe. Help my unbelief. I can't even believe without you. I need you to even give me faith. I need you to even make me want to pray to you. I need you. That's desperation. See, desperation oftentimes comes from difficulty, though. Think about it with Matt and Misty. I was texting with Misty yesterday and just reminding me of the story. I said, this is 11 years ago. Am I remembering this right? And just remembering being in our kitchen when they, they named the name of their ministry. is called Hearts Cry. And, and they started this orphanage and reformed adoption. But you know where that, the root of that all came from? Is they wanted to adopt themselves because they couldn't have children biologically. And they were crying out to God. for they, The reason why they knew that Panama even had a problem is because they were going there to adopt children. And then they couldn't. And they had unique gifts that God had given them and brought them to, to reform a nation 
to a difficulty that started in their lives. I was reading an article this week of a guy who didn't have arms, and he was talking about difficulty in life. And he quoted that famous C.S. Lewis quote, where it talks about how God whispers to us sometimes, and he speaks to us sometimes. It's on the screen. He says, but he shouts to us in our pain. And then I thought to myself, you could reverse that. Sometimes we speak to him. Sometimes we just whisper to him. But when there's difficulty, we're begging him for help. And we were talking as an elder team, and you saw several of the elders up here today. We were talking as an elder team a couple months ago about what's next for us as a church. Like, we don't want to become comfortable. We don't want to become complacent. And so what are the next steps of faith that God has us, has us taking? And so we were seeking him, and we are talking to him and asking the Lord to speak to us. We started writing down this document, and on the document we wrote, we're begging God to do this. And then we just asked in the meeting. I asked the question because I knew I wasn't doing it. I said, we're writing down that we're begging God. Is anyone here begging God? I said, I ask God, look, I ask, I pray for you, I ask God to change your lives. I ask God that people that are far from God would be drawn to our church and they'd come to Christ. I ask that marriages would be reconciled. I ask, and several of you have, you know, spouses that aren't believers. This would be the heaviest thing on your heart. And I ask God to save your spouse. I ask him for those things. But do I beg him? Think about, when have you begged God? Because I've begged God a few times. I begged God when my wife had a disease that was incurable. I begged God when my dad was about to die. I begged God when my child was missing. But I ask God to do a lot of stuff for our church. There's a difference. And then I look at Jesus, and I look at when he prayed, and he looks over Jerusalem, and he's weeping for these people. So are we begging God? Are we begging God? Do you beg God? And we're talking about revival. Do you beg God for revival? Or just like, God, if you would send revival, that'd be nice. And also, if you could pay my electric bill, that'd be cool. And we're just like, God, we need you. And I want to challenge you with something today. You're going to get, as you leave today, some cards of a prayer initiative we're starting as a church. And you're going to be invited to pray up here on Tuesdays as often as you're able. The church will be open all day for that. And some different challenges of things to pray. But I want to challenge you something. Can I challenge you with something to pray? It's a bold prayer. It's an audacious prayer, prayer actually. I want to challenge you. Would you pray with me? I dare you to pray this with me. God, do whatever it takes to show me my desperate need for you. Would you, would you pray? God, show me. Because if he really answers prayer, that might be a scary thing. Because he often does it through difficulty. Not always. Often. Would you, would you do whatever it takes to show me my desperate need for you? That's what he did with Matt and Misty. They're crying out. They're, they're a little girl. They don't know if she's going to make it. That we need you, God. Show desperate need. But you know what happens when you do pray? Is you're connecting with the power of God. When you do pray, you're engaging the Almighty and you're connecting with God's power. And you see that with this church all throughout Acts chapter 2. You see them. There's a reason they were devoted to prayer. They needed God. There's a reason why they continued to persist in prayer because they saw throughout the persecution that God shakes the place and gives them boldness. He does miracles. And we didn't read all the way through verse 47 like we've been doing. It says in verse 43, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. There was an evidence of God's power in their midst to these people that were committed to prayer. But just try and imagine with me for a minute. Imagine what it was like to be a part of that 120. Like you were there in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14 in that prayer meeting before there was 3,000, before there was 5,000, before there was 10,000, before the gospel started going around the world, which happened through persecution, by the way. 
You're gathered together in that room with just 120. Maybe you were there in that room with the locked doors at the end of the Gospel of John when you were terrified because they just killed your Messiah. They just killed your Savior. They just killed your friend, Jesus. And you don't know what's going to happen to you. And then Jesus appears. Maybe you were there at Pilate's palace when Jesus was being flogged. And you're looking around, and Pilate comes out. And for those of you who don't know that, Pilate was the governor, and he had, he had the authority to have Jesus killed. And the leaders of that day, the religious leaders, didn't have that authority, so they brought Jesus to Pilate to try and get him killed. Pilate interviews him. He finds nothing wrong with him. And he's, in fact, he's interviewed multiple times by different leaders, and every time he's found innocent. And what, the only reason he was flogged is because Pilate was trying to appease a bloodthirsty crowd. But then when Jesus comes out at Pilate's palace. He's covered in blood. And then Pilate says... It's our custom that we release to you one prisoner. There's Jesus, this man who's done nothing. There's Barabbas, an infamous criminal who's guilty of murder and rebellion against the government. Imagine you're one of those 120, and you don't know what happens next. You're living it. And you assume it's like a no-brainer. They're going to release Jesus, of course. And then you look and you see in another woman's eyes, and she yells out, Barabbas! And you see a businessman, and he goes, Barabbas! And you see some kids, Barabbas! doesn't make any sense to you. And then Pilate says, what do you want me to do with this man, this bloody Jesus? And then you start seeing those same people yell, crucify him! Crucify him! And then you're in this room, and Jesus appears to you. And then in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, you're in a prayer meeting. The Holy Spirit comes upon you. You start seeing these people saved. Less than two months later, you're in this church of 3,120 people, and you're singing, and you're praying, God, we need you, whatever song they were singing in that day. Get your hands up, and you look over, and you see that woman that was yelling, crucify him. And you see that businessman, and you see those kids running around. Like Those are the very people that were yelling to crucify. You would be acutely aware of the power of God, because God changed their lives, and that's what God does. He doesn't just resurrect people from the dead. He doesn't just heal people with diseases. He wants to transform spiritually dead hearts. You see, our problem, our problem as, as churches, I was reading a study that was 15 years old this week, 15-year-old study by George Barna, and he was talking about how revival, he thought maybe was on the horizon for America. And he talked about how there were people that were getting in, uh, reading the Bible more than ever before. It was like a resurgence in America in 2004. People were praying more. People were getting into small groups more. But then he said this. Listen to this. He said, let me put this quote up on the screen, I think, if we got it. Looking ahead at some of the other findings now being analyzed from our annual tracking survey in 2004, we find that in spite of increased religious behavior on several fronts, there's no concurrent rise in the percentage of adults who've embraced Jesus Christ as their Savior. That is, simple language, no parallel rise in the proportion who are born again. And then he goes on, and he says this, the challenge for the church is to not allow people to substitute religious busyness for genuine spiritual transformation. Guess what? We failed. And there's a lot of people in churches that are the walking dead. It's not just a TV show. Go to church. You can see it all the time. And there's people that are walking, they're, doing, they're, they're going to prayer meetings, they're serving in the kids' ministry, they're leading small groups, and they don't even know Jesus. And they've substituted religious busyness for genuine spiritual transformation. Is there any wonder why we wouldn't pray? 
Not only are we wealthy, not only are we educated, not only do we think we don't have a need, some of us don't even know Jesus. But when we, when we pray, God does stuff, because there's stuff that, that you just can't even experience apart from prayer, by the way. In fact, in Mark chapter 9, if you go to that passage of Scripture that I was, I was mentioning to you, the, the Father who says, I believe, help me with my unbelief. It's interesting what happens next is Jesus heals that kid. The kid falls down on the ground, convulses, falls down on the ground. Everybody thinks he's dead, probably white as a ghost. Picks him up. Guy's healed. Kid's healed. Goes home with his dad. We don't hear from them anymore. But what we see is a story where Jesus' disciples come to Jesus in private in a room, and they go, why couldn't we do it? Do you know what Mark chapter 9 says, last verse? They've, now wait, before I read the verse, and well, it's fine, leave it up on the screen, but they've cast out demons before. If you read about the disciples. But look at what he says. He said to them, this kind, there's some demons you can cast out, but not this kind. We've had some success as a church. There's some things that God will do through us. There's some things without prayer. He says, this kind can be driven out, can't, but it cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. What's really interesting if you go back and read the story is there's no evidence of Jesus praying. Jesus lived a life of prayer. He was devoted to prayer. He was always praying. There was no like, oh, you're, you want your son to be healed? Can you come back on Tuesday? That's when we do our prayer meeting. No, he heals this kid. And then he tells us, there's stuff you will not experience if you don't pray. And there are things that's true. If you look, Look throughout history and look in the, look in the Bible at, at revivals. Nehemiah, one guy starts praying in the book of Nehemiah, it leads to revival. I told you last week about the, the revival that happened in Wales in 1904 and 1905. Uh, th- that started with one guy praying, by the way. Like, there's this theme when you start looking at revivals. Small groups of people start praying, and, and thousands of lives get changed. One guy, his name was Evan Roberts, if you want to look him up. He was a seminary student. Do you know why he, he, he took himself out of seminary? Do you know why he started praying for revival? Because he lost his own fire. You know, one of the reasons why I said, I'm going to preach on revival. Do you know why? Because I was asking myself, do I love Jesus more now than I did when we started this church? Do I love Jesus more now than when I first became a Christian? Have I gotten used to living the Christian life? Like, I want to be on fire for Jesus. I don't want to be lukewarm. I don't know about you. And Evan Roberts, he didn't want that. He starts praying, and he said, he said to some of his friends, do you think it's possible God could save 100,000 people? He started praying for it. In six months, God saved 100,000 people in Wales. You hear about the Haystack Revival? Five college students started praying. The reason why they call it a Haystack Revival is because they were out, they were walking to have a conversation about whether world missions was a legitimate thing, whether we should really be sending people around the globe. And then there was a thunderstorm and they hid underneath a haystack. And people, you can trace back every major missions organization in the United States to that prayer meeting with those five college students. How many times has the Bible been translated in other languages? How many people have come to Christ? How many times has the gospel been preached? It goes back to prayer and praying. Like there's certain things that you will not experience apart from prayer. And revival is one of them. 